<clears throat> Turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2. And we, so, um, I was actually, we had our, uh, our CTK 101 yesterday, and somebody was asking me how, how do, he's, he asked me how, how do I know how long my sermon will go, and I said usually by page count. And, uh, and so as I was finishing typing up my sermon last night, the page count was, was getting higher and higher uh, and cresting beyond uh, what you probably would be patient of on a Sunday. Um, so I in, uh, just chose to hold that last point for next week. Um, and even just kind of praying through that, I think that would be more appropriate as we tackle that one topic of, of marriage uh, in the very beginning um, just solo by itself. So that'll be covered next week. So there will be only two points today. But don't get excited about that because it still went to my full page count. So it um, won't be any shorter. But um, So Genesis chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 4 to verse 19 in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. <coughs> this is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river, river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. This is God's word. It's entirely true and given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2. Thank you for um, reminding us again of, of who you are as our creator. We, we often forget that, um, honestly. And so, God, we, we dive back into these um, foundational, historical uh, truths um, about where we came from and also how uh, you want us to live. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us that this morning again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. i got a fly up here. It's going to be like a Mike Pence thing. Like, it's flying around. So, if you see me swatting. Um, 
I know like when I, when I read, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, and if you're in a Bible reading plan, you're, you're probably somewhere in Exodus at this point. So you've already kind of marched through Genesis. But every time I read of the creation account, I'm always reminded of, of the beauty in it. My imagination is always drawn up into Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Just imagining uh, being surrounded by perfect beauty, perfect order. We have no idea what that's about. No, no leaf, no grain of sand is out of place. Everything is perfect. Perfect relationships with every part of creation. Martin Luther wrote this in his lectures on Genesis. He wrote, I am fully convinced that before Adam's sin, his eyes were so sharp and clear that they surpassed those of the lynx and eagle. He was stronger than the lions and the bears whose strength is very great and he handled them the way he handled the way we handle puppies. If we are looking for an astounding philosopher, let us not overlook our first parents while they were still free from sin. What a beautiful description. Yet sadly, this beauty and order of creation is set against the the, the dreadful backdrop of the fall that is coming in Genesis chapter 3. We all know it's coming. It's, it's the storm brewing on the horizon. In Genesis 1 and 2, we could say, are the calm before this storm. And we even see subtle hints at it. The author of Genesis uh, hints at this in the language that he uses in Genesis chapter 2, where he addresses these parts of creation that are directly affected at the fall. So you have the bush and the plant that is mentioned in verse 5. And and this bush and the plant anticipate the thorns and the thistles of chapter 3, verse 18. And then the mention of no rain in verse 5 again prepares us for the flood narrative that's coming in Genesis chapter 7 because of sin. And then this passing reference to no man to work the ground points to the time when work will be laced with drudgery and sweat and blood and tears. And then in verse 7, the reference to man created out of dust is no accident because it anticipates the curse of the fall that says, to dust he shall return in chapter 3, verse 19. But, believe it or not, these chapters are making us ready to see where true human flourishing is found, even within a fallen world. And so over the next couple of Sundays, that's what we're going to look at. But we'll see two of those today in our text. One is the crown of creation, and then two is the commands of creation. And then we'll look at the covenant of creation next week. So first, the crown of creation. In chapter 1, verse 28, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, we see this reality. That humanity, humanity is the crown jewel of God's creation. We could say that that God saved the best part of his creation for last when he created man and woman. Nothing else that God has created compares to humanity. Nothing. You heard it in our call to worship in Psalm 8. 
After observing creation, David, King David is wondering out loud to God in his prayers when he asks the question, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? I mean, he's looking out at the stars, he's looking out at creation and the sun and the moon and wondering about how amazing and, and awesome these parts of creation are. And then he comes to man who is sinful and broken and rebellious against God. And he is one of those people. And says, why would you even give us any thought, God? Why would you do that? So David, thinking this through post-fall, obviously, is dumbfounded. And we should still be dumbfounded that God would think so highly of this part of creation. Yet he does. Which is why David can end Psalm 8 just as he began it. If you read the entirety of the psalm, you would see that he, he, uh, he um, puts us in the beginning of the psalm and he puts us at the end of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this is also words being spoken by one of the most successful human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. David's reign as king uh, surpassed any, any reigning king that we have now or any ruler that we have now besides his son Solomon. I mean, he was successful. He had every reason to praise himself. He had every reason to praise humanity, but he doesn't. His conclusion is the glory of God, not humanity. Yet in our day, in the 21st century, 2021, we hear the, the, the opposite every four years in inauguration speeches, don't we? Humanity remains, to many, the hope of creation. And at the same time, humanity remains, from womb to grave, one of the most controversial topics of our day. Just to name a few. Pro-life or pro-choice? When does life begin? Is it in the womb or after the baby comes into this world? Uh, the gen gender confusion. Uh, gender equality arguments that we're having. Hatred of a different race or a nationality. Or, or even asking questions of uh, what do we do with those we, we deem no longer necessary or useful to society? Like the terminally ill or the elderly. What is life even for? What's the meaning of it? And all of these questions are questions of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to exist as a human being? And I believe it's in Christianity and only in Christianity that we find the answer to that question. Specifically in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So the, the only part of creation created in God's image is humanity. It's the only part of creation that's created in his image. It's what we call the imago Dei, the image of God. And this has serious implications to our flourishing because it sets us apart from every other aspect of God's created world. 
So look at the, you can just look at the shift that takes place in how God creates humanity because it's different to how he creates the rest of the world. So we saw this last week in, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, that God created everything by his word. He spoke it and it came to be, just like that. In chapter 2, verse 7, God creates the man out of dust and the woman out of the man. So God uses what has already been created to create humanity. And then goes a step further and breathes life into them. So the word uh, breath here, or breathe, is only used in the Bible for God and the life imparted for man. It is never used for animals or any other part of creation. Only for human beings. Because what this breath, uh, this breath brings is more than animation. It brings to humanity spiritual understanding and a functioning conscience. So like it's said in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures is that God gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. So from the very beginning of time, God is breathing into uh, his creatures called humans and giving them everything that they need for life and for godliness. And he continues to do that to this day. You have everything you need. This shows us that this is not a God who is distant. He is not just off in the heavens doing his own thing and just kind of letting us do whatever we want to do, but rather, this is a God who draws especially close to humanity. You heard it in verse 7. And God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. That is intimacy. If I were to breathe into your nostrils, you would, I mean, you would think I was crazy. That is closeness. And that is exactly what God does. Now, this has implications for everything that I mentioned a second ago. Because when we believe all humanity has been created in the image of God, it should give us pause when the questions of what does it mean to be human arise. It should trigger our minds to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In Genesis chapter 2, and how God created men and women. So we can say there is absolutely no justification for racism. There's no justification for abortion within an Imago Dei worldview. We can't get around it. There's no sort of gymnastics that we can do to kind of jump around it. There's no justification for that. Because God feels the same way about humanity now as he did in the beginning. We haven't, we haven't gotten more evil We've all, since the fall, we have always been the same. We have inherited the exact same evil that Adam uh, created in the garden. And God feels the same way about us as he did then. 
to humanity, believe it or not, even after the, the most recent events that we saw two weeks ago and that kind of craziness that happened in D.C. And, and even some of the events that happened last year in 2020, humanity is still the crown of God's creation. That should humble us. This is not some lab rat experiment that God is administering on us. And the reason we know this is because He is with the creation He made. He comes alongside of us. The Scriptures tell us over and over is that He is at our right hand. He upholds us. He walks with us. He's not above us and just kind of controlling us like puppets. But He is with us. He is Emmanuel. God with us. And we see this played out to the fullest extent in the person and work of Jesus in the New Testament. That God in the flesh, not only coming down into our broken world, but actually taking on the brokenness for us. And as Christians, we believe the gospel is what makes us truly human to the fullest extent. And one of the ways to understand your own humanity is to understand who you are in relation to how God has called you to live within His created order. And this comes forth in the second way God prepares us to live in a broken world, through the commands of creation. Right from the very beginning. We see here in, in, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, three, we could say, positive commands, and then one negative command or one warning that God gives to us right from the outset, right in the very beginning. And so it's important to see that even before the fall, God is directing all of humanity in how they should live. It wasn't because, because before, before sin we, we were perfect in every way, but God still says, this is how you're to live your life. This is how I want you to live. The part of his grace toward humanity is that he is showing us how to live, how to flourish in his world. So we can draw the conclusion that true human flourishing comes only when we are walking in obedience to God's commands. And it's a clear pattern we see in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 50, but we also see it throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That God is repeatedly saying to his people, uh, essentially what he says to, to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. You remember that story. He says to Cain, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, sin is crouching at your door. And that's the choice that lays before all of us, every day, isn't it? Do well or not. Obey or disobey. Choose wisdom or choose foolishness. Well, the first commands we encounter are found in chapter 1, verse 28. And these commands are also known as the creation mandate, so, which, is a, which is a mandate that, that carries us through Genesis and even you, you can see it, it, hints of it in, the, in different parts of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And it's given here to Adam in chapter 1. 
And then it's repeated to Noah in chapter 9. And it's repeated to Moses in chapter 22. And then we even see it in Jeremiah 23. And that is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I'm, let me just say, I'd say that we're doing a pretty good job of that at Christ the King. So if you've noticed, we have several pregnant women running around here and lots of little kids all over the place. And we are doing a good job at being fruitful and multiplying. And we are fulfilling that command of God, believe it or not. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. But this command means the way it sounds. It means to have babies, to fill the earth with them to raise them to know and fear the Lord, and then to send them out into the world. And we get this idea when we, when we hear what Jesus says in Matthew 28, when he tells his disciples to go out and make more disciples. He essentially says to his disciples, go out and multiply disciples. It's the exact same work we're seeing here, or that same command that we're seeing here. Our friends, Terry and I's friends, Ray and Jenny Orland, they often say, um, to the next generation, to the next generation, take the gospel into the next generation by training, teaching, and discipling your kids. And then send them out into the world. The psalmist in Psalm 127 rightly describes children as arrows in your quiver. And the implied meaning is you, as a parent, are to knock your arrows to the bowstring and release them. The quiver is not there for you just to hold on to your children until the day that they die and never release them. And the preparation for that begins immediately, as soon as they're born, or even before that when you're praying for them. And to be persistent, even when you don't feel like anything is working. And trust me, there will be lots of days you don't feel like anything is happening in their hearts. But push in and don't give up. The second command is in the same verse. And it might say in your, uh, in your copy of Scripture, either subdue the earth or have dominion over the earth. It means the same thing. Uh, but I doubt this is a command that many of us think, back, think about on a day-to-day basis, that we're, like to, we're to subdue the earth and to have dominion. We're, we're probably not thinking about those things, but it is important. So I might be crushing some of you with this next comment, but I'll take the risk. Your dog and your cat are not your equal. Okay? I don't care if you like to call them fur babies or not or anything like that or if you refer to yourself as mom or dad. That's, that's totally fine. But I just want you to know that they are not your equal. So we have a small zoo at our house. So I obviously like animals. But I can just tell you right now, I have a financial cap on how much money that I will spend on them at the vet. Uh, sorry, Tristan, our resident veterinarian. Um, I tell my pets this on the way to the vet. Hey, if this goes over our cap, You've been really good to our family these past six months. So, just letting you know. But you know who I don't treat like that? My wife and kids. I would spend any amount of money that was needed to heal them or to save their life. In fact, I would give my life for them at this very moment. And this is what sets us apart 
from the rest of creation. We, like God, have a different relationship with the rest of creation compared to our relationship with humanity. Which is to say, God's command to subdue or to have dominion means we must rule over creation, over God's creation well. We should be thoughtful about this. We should use the earth's resources in a way that that benefits yourself, yes, but also blesses others. The one thing to notice is that as we live out these two commands, we imitate the one we are imaged after. This is God's work. God's already doing this work. God is the, the ultimate creator and he's the ultimate ruler over all of life perfectly. And as we do that, we imitate him. Well, the third command that God gives us here is work. And this one may not sound accurate to you because maybe, maybe you hate your job. Maybe you're dreading Monday. You're dreading going into work tomorrow because, uh, because you hate it so much. Or, or maybe you just see so much fr- frustration in your vocation that you just, you just kind of keep your head down Uh, Do your job, go home, and collect your paycheck every single week. And you just don't give any more thought to your job. Or maybe you've experienced the burn of workaholics in your life. Maybe you have been a workaholic. And your view of work is tainted because of this. Well, the reason for this is normal because we view work now uh, through a post-fall lens. Yet here we have in verse 15... God giving the man to work before the fall. And so what that shows us is that because we are created in God's image, we have been designed to work. And in our work, just listen to me on this point. And I know there's some of you in here that hate, you've told me this, you hate, you hate your job. So I know there's some in here that hate their jobs. But let me just remind you of this. In your work, No matter what it is, you are to show off God's excellence. You are to show off God's creativity. You are to show off God's beauty and glory to a watching world. Because people are watching. And when you do that, you are showing them the hope that you have is not in your job. It's not in your paycheck but that it's in your creator, God. This is why Paul says in in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, Paul says to the church. If anyone's not willing to work, they can't eat. Because to refuse to work, or to choose to work poorly, I would say, is a fundamental violation of, of God's creation design for humanity. The fourth command, found in verse 17, is also a warning. God says to to Adam after he's already said, look, I've given you every tree in the garden uh, to eat from, to enjoy, um, to relax under even, do whatever you want with it. Enjoy it to its fullest extent. But there's one tree, one tree out of everything else that you are not to eat from. You're not even to touch it. 
and it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this was a warning against the worst thing that could possibly happen, death. And yes, it's, it's a physical death. Adam eventually dies. I believe he was 900 when he died or something like that. But most likely, this was a, a spiritual death that God is referring to here. Because humanity's disobedience separates them from God. It creates a death. Sin creates a death, a separation. So again, in order for humanity to to flourish, we must keep God's commands. We must walk in the way that He has called us to walk because that is truly the best way to walk. My uh, Bible reading plan had me praying through Psalm 24 this morning. And it was just a reminder of this very thing in verses 3 through 6. This is King David again speaking and asking. The, he's always asking questions of God, which I love. And, and then answers them himself from the scriptures. But he, he says this. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then his answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And it's here. Seeking the face of the God of Jacob. It's here that we can now understand why God put a tree like this in the garden. Because maybe you read through that and said, why would God even do that? What's the point of that? He could have just left it out and everything would be okay, right? But here's the reason God does that. He doesn't, the presence of the tree is not to tempt Adam. So we know Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you just look to James 1.13, James says clearly, God does not tempt us. He doesn't do that. Now, the presence of the tree was to remind Adam that he was not his own God. And that he was responsible at all times, moment by moment, day by day, at all times, responsible to his creator. This reminded me of of Paul's, when Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh in 1 Corinthians 12. Maybe you remember that. But he says this, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So Paul is intimately close to God. God has spoken audibly to him. And Paul is saying, you know, that can make me really prideful. And so he's saying, because of this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I've seen, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that was the end of it for Paul. He goes on, therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. So we're reminded in our own weaknesses and hardships that we are not our own God either. All you have to do is get COVID. And then it just knocks you on your back and you realize how human you are, how broken and weak you are. That you are not God. And at the same time, we are also responsible at all times to our Creator, dependent completely upon Him. Because we also look at a tree, don't we? We look at this tree that is covered in the blood of our Creator's only begotten Son. That reminds us what the first Adam could not overcome, which was temptation and sin. The second Adam, Jesus, does overcome. And he does this so that we could experience true flourishing in relationship with God, our Creator. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the tree, the cross, that is uh, ever-present, hopefully, in the believer's uh, mind. That we are reminded, uh, every time we sing about it, we read about it, um, that we remind each other about it, that, that apart from this tree, we would not have redemption. And so, God, we, we are thankful that even through the creation story that we can be reminded that we are ever dependent upon you as our creator and as our sustainer. And that happens only because of what you have done for us in Christ from the very beginning of time. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way up until now. And so, Father, would you remind us of our own humanity and our own dependence and need of Christ every single day. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.